during, during my experience in prison from inmates and COs, they used to be look at me and used to be always like, man, why are you in here? And, you know, because I, I was always quiet and I, you know, what what I was asked to do, you know, as far as job-wise, whatever, I did it. And I didn't get the COs, no problems or nothing like that. It was lock-up time, whatever, I locked up. And they used to be like, man, they all, they all, all of them like, why are you in here? And I tell them, and they be like, I don't see it. You know, I don't I don't see it. You, Man, you're a good person. I don't see it. And I just I started laughing. Me like, yeah, I know, man, but unfortunately, you know, Hey, you know, I mean, I, I got caught up, you know what I mean? There are good people in prison. There are people that want to change in prison but don't know how to make a transition. There are some good people coming out of prison. We made a mistake. Now we need a chance to show you that we have learned to make better decisions. We have grew. I'm going to lead an example. <laughs> yeah. I came out and I grew, and I grew for the better, you know. I mean, with the help of this, this singing program, Mr. Joyner, I am thankful. That was the voice of Sam Dent, who faced a mandatory minimum 20 years in prison after conviction in a case I prosecuted around the same time as the case I prosecuted against my co-host, Leonard Joyner. In previous episodes... Mr. Joyner and I discussed his Shifting into New Gear program for helping people successfully re-enter community and family life after release from prison. Mr. Dent was one of Mr. Joyner's early clients, and in this episode, he tells us what a difference it made after returning to the community to have the support he received from Mr. Joyner in his SING program, including assistance finding employment. Mr. Dent shares his backstory of how he ended up going to prison and tells us about his experience in prison. Most importantly, and most interestingly, he shares the story of who he is today, of what he's made of himself after prison. You will also learn a lot from the exchange that he, Mr. Joyner, and I had about criminal justice policy issues. As I told them during that discussion, they are subject matter experts, speaking from lived experience giving them a perspective of great value to those of us who've never seen our justice system from the inside out, rather than the outside in. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm your host, David Risley. And I'm Leonard Joyner. And our guest today is Sam Dent. How y'all doing there? How y'all doing? Good day. I'm doing well, and we are really happy to have you here with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I'm kind of excited to be here. <laughs> Mr. Dent, you and I first met years ago. Yes, I can somewhat still remember. I was like at this store, used to be on like 25th and Cook, something like that, and uh, Police came and snatched me up, and I'm looking like I done bonded out. What are y'all picking me up for? They was like, well, they want to see you down at the uh, Justice Department. I'm like, huh? Okay. So they took me down to this building over right off Monroe by Springfield High School, and 
brought me into the office where you was at. <laughs> so you shot me down, you know what I mean? You just kind of laid back smooth, smut your chair around. And you're like, you might want to listen to what I got to say. And I was like, I admit, I was getting you a hard time. But I was like, no, I need my lawyer here, you know. And <laughs> so finally, he's like, well, I'm going to give you the ins and out, you know what I mean, on what's going on. And you pretty much explained to me and talked to me how y'all do things around here. And it's like, uh, how you think you got here? I said, y'all came and picked me up. He was like, no, someone told on you. <laughs> you know, for you to be here, someone told on you. So I'm looking in the back of my head like, yeah, that's true. And, you know, y'all, you talked to me. You gave me a good speech on how things go about forest. I, I can stay out and, you know, do my time, but. You know how to do what the other guy did. He did it on you. You got to do it on someone else, you know. And um, I didn't too much feel that because you know what they say. They say snitches get stitches, you know. So I, I was kind of like had that in the back of my head, you know. And, uh, oh, man, it was just y'all tag team me up in there that to where I'm like, man, I just like, oh. Uh, all I wanted was my lawyer, you know what I mean? Finally, my lawyer, you know, came in and I don't know, I think he was just as messed up in here as I was. <laughs> so he just, I mean, it, it just was, it wasn't no good having no lawyer. Because when, when, when y'all got through picking him apart, he was like, man, I think you ought to go on and, and do what they ask, you know what I mean? Like, oh, man, I don't know. And for us, you know, things like that is, it wasn't just for me to just to go and snitch on somebody, you know what I mean? The thing was that it was, the stuff was mine, you know what I mean? And for me to do something like that, then I'd be, I would have been falsely telling on someone else, you know what I'm saying? So that was something I couldn't do, you know what I mean? So at the time, I had to say, yeah, I do that just so y'all can let me go. And you know, y'all, when your next what y'all did, y'all let me go, and I just went on about my business. I wasn't even studying that other guy that was infiltrated or whatever. You know what I mean? Because I mean, like I said, it was it was mine, and it would have been it would have been wrong for me to just tell on somebody that I have no idea about. You know how he conduct his business or something like that. So I would have just been, I would have just been making up something, you know. And we weren't interested in hearing anything you'd make up, right? I know what you're talking about is the old DEA office. Yes. So you were brought in, and I would have been there, and as the prosecutor in a case, and presented you with the opportunity to cooperate in a covert, undercover capacity, right? Secret capacity in our investigation of other people. And as a result of that, you could receive a reward when you were prosecuted in a case that I had was would be prosecuting you for. Right. And when you asked to speak to a lawyer, of course, any questions of you would have stopped until your lawyer got there. But we could we probably still presented you with, here's your situation, and this is what you need to talk to your lawyer about. 
Yes. So I gather you agreed to cooperate and were turned loose that day. Yes. And as soon as I was turned to loose, that's just my head just went blank. I just forgot what all y'all was talking about. You know, it just all I know I was back back out on the street. So I was, you know, as I was out, you know, even I think it was like in March I got picked up, and you know, it had you know quite a few months. Even that I. You know, still didn't have no desire to, you know, even though y'all gave me a nice amount of time to, you know, give y'all somebody, you know, but still, like I said, I mean, it was it was my stuff, you know what I mean? So I I just didn't I just didn't see it like that, you know. I just whoever like I said the guy was or the guys was, I just let them went on about their business and I'm minding my own business, you know. So what happened in your case? Tell us about that. Well, I got picked up in October of '97 on it on a manufactured to deliver a controlled substance, and you know when I asked, even though when like you were talking, you was like, "Well, Mister Dent, you, you know you're looking at twenty years." But if somehow, but like I didn't see it like that. But <laughs> that's what I that's what I ended up with, you know, twenty years. So you know, going through, you know, the process of, you know, being sentenced. You know, you you are if you in the courtroom, you know, you happen to look back over your shoulder, something you pretty much trying to look back to see what's family there, and you probably look back it's probably like a handful of your family there, or something like that. You know, like a lot of your family don't like stuff like that. You know what I mean? Even I wasn't, you know, even though I wasn't out there just sell drugs because I could sell drugs or nothing like that. You know what I mean? Just it was pretty much me being a bad kid as I, you know, grow up. It's not like, you know, my, my parents did what they did, everything right. It was just me. And, you know, you get older, you get a family or something like that. And you are you trying to get a job, but somehow I don't know the job. Trying to get a job and stuff like that, you can't do that, and you want to you don't want to stay in the streets and drink and all that. You know what I mean? So that that won't work. So you go in to try to do an interview or something like that, you know, and the guest that's interviewing you or something like that, they they'll see it in you. You know what I mean? And you be back where you started from trying to get a job and, and that's somehow you, you you end up in the drug game, you know. In my case, that would happen. I wasn't in the drug game, like I said, just because I could sell drugs or nothing like that. You know, I was in the drug game because I had a family. How was, old were you? I was like, <laughs> I was in my, no lady. I started off, I think, about around 19, around 19 years old. And how old were you when you got arrested and 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 convicted? Uh, about twenty nine. About twenty nine, twenty nine years old. What kind of drugs were you selling? Crack cocaine. I was pretty much I was out there selling crack cocaine. Back, well, yeah, I'd say in the late eighties, I, I mean, they didn't went through it to where they had to. 
you know, whoever, how you get it, they'll do it themselves, but, you know, cook it up themselves or something like that. But, you know, it was buying powder and, and converting it over to crack. But like I think in the late 80s up here, I guess the crack cocaine was was introduced to the game. And when you can buy it now, you didn't have to buy it in powder. You could buy it in powder already, already get it in crack cocaine, you know. So that that's how when I did it, you know, I get it already in crack cocaine. Well, Mr. Dent, with you know, with me being a, a drug dealer myself during the same time you was out there selling drugs, I mean you we always we grew up together. We grew up together and uh while we was in the drug gang, you know, there's time that me and you came together. As a matter of fact, we went with two sisters. We dated two sisters uh, at <laughs> right. the same time that all this was taking place. As the conversation continued, Mr. Dent told the story of a police search of his house and the discovery and seizure of a substantial amount of crack cocaine. The part that was especially interesting to me as the prosecutor in his case was when he said the police missed a full kilogram, which was 2.2 pounds, that was hidden well enough it wasn't found even though the police drug dog was barking at it. He said he told the police the drugs they did find were his, hoping that would head off any questioning of his girlfriend, who he was afraid under pressure might tell the police more than they already knew. So you took the weight? Yes. And you went to prison? Yes. For 20 years? Yes. Which would have been a mandatory minimum penalty for, with your history and with, the, uh, with that weight? Right. Actually, you know, because for, for on that, it, however it was and whatever, actually, I was looking at 10 years, actually, but I got enhanced 10 years. So that's how I ended up with the 20. Because of a prior felony drug conviction of some kind? Yes. Now, I'm going to fast forward in time. I want to come back to where we're at right here. But let's fast forward in time, and let's talk about you today. Yes, sir. You and I met because you know Leonard Joyner. Yes. And in episodes one and two of this podcast, <laughs> Mr. Joyner and I shared our story of how we reconnected after he served 17 years in prison, and he had reached out to the governor's office to talk to him about a program that he had here in Springfield that he had created to help people re-enter successfully, re-enter the community after they're released from prison. And he was surprised when the person who called him back was David Risley. Right. And at that time, I was the director of public safety policy. And he and I reconnected. And I was impressed with what he was doing. He, in turn, introduced me to you, and you and I reconnected. Right. And at that time, you were a manager at Pizza Ranch. Yes. I was, uh, when I had, uh, got out of prison, you know, you know, we, being getting out of prison like that, you know, I was in the halfway house, and they let us go certain hours to go look for jobs. I got, I was walking and looking for jobs, and not far from the Triangle Center where I was stationed at, Mr. Joyner stayed over there, and I just happened to see him standing out over there. And he seen me, you know, Sam, man, you know, that's you. You know, and he called me on over there. And uh, we got to talking, you know, and I was talking about how I was, you know, out looking for a job, you know, and he, he you know, he got to tell me about 
the scene program, shipping in the new gear. He got to tell me about his program and how he trying to help, you know, inmates that getting out and that to reconnect with their family to get jobs and everything. And I'm like, well, I'm trying, you know. He said, I tell you what, he said, give me a couple of days, you know what I mean? Let me see what I can come up with. Matter of fact, the next day he called me <laughs> like, uh, I had one over there. He said, I've been over to Charlie Parker. Uh, the the guy that owned the place name is Mike Murphy. This is a restaurant, Charlie yes, Parker's restaurant. restaurant, yeah. Charlie Parker, yes. And, uh, guy that owned the name, Mike Murphy. He said, I had a talk with him. He said, you need to go over there and he going to give you an interview. I was like, all right. So I went over there, you know, and, uh, you know, Mike, he, you know, he was talking to me, Mike Murphy, the owner at Charlie Park, he was talking to me and he was telling me, you know, I heard good things about you, you know, you you willing to work, you know, and he, and he said, well, Mr. Mr. Joyner, he, he said, you'll work now. He said, uh, I won't have no doubts about you or nothing, which he said. I'm like, no, nah, man, I just, I just need a job. I just need a chance, you know what I'm saying? He said, well, Mr. Joyner assured me that, you know, you, you where you were, how you did in the joint. You're a good cook and things like that. So he said, I tell you what, I'm, all right, Mr. Dent, Mr. Joyner, now, we're going to we gonna hire you when we give you a chance. He said, all right, all right. I, I worked it. So I worked it at Charlie Parker's clear until Mike sold it. That one of the other managers that worked there, you know, buy him out and he ran for state representative, even, even now, today. You know, me and Mike, Mr. Murphy, we stay in, you know, contact, texting each other. And, you know, you see how I'm doing. And he always tell me if you need me for a reference, you know what I mean? Use me for a reference and all that. You know, he was like, man, it just, he still, even, even in, it, it didn't stop there. Probably six months or something, internet I had built this place called a Peace and Ranch. And I guess Mr. Jordan was on top of that as well. He called me and he's like, how would you like to go for a second interview to, you know, try to get another job? I said, what you talking about? And, you know, and he told me, he was like, they're having at the uh, unemployment off the night street, they're having open unemployments. So I went up in there and, you know, I was talking to the lady that owned the place and a few of her managers, and she welcomed me to welcome y'all to come on in and do an application. So I need for you to get up in the morning, go on up there and do your application, you know what I mean? So I went up there and, you know, I did application, you know, and ended up getting hired. So in doing the midst of, you know, all that, uh, I mean, I, like I said, I work, it just, a fresh place like that, man, it just needed reliable workers. and They were just getting started in Springfield. Yes, and I mean, whew, it was like my hours... And have they had me doing over hours because I couldn't even I couldn't even walk in the door good because they was like such and such called off, so we might need you to stay for their shift too. So pretty much I worked at Pizza Ranch pretty six seven days a week, and like I said I worked I worked my way up to the manager like every like every month you know they was just. Well, we're gonna we're gonna promote you to do this. We're gonna, gonna promote you to that. We need you to do that. You know, I'm saying even I worked at them and I worked at Charlie Parker's till, like I said, till Mike sold it and the new manager got to switching everything around. I said, Well, I can't do it because I worked at Peace and Ranch too. 
And on my off days at my work, I worked at the Pizza Ranch all day. So I said, well, now I'm just going to go on and go with the Pizza Ranch. So when I did that, the lady went on, she made me a full-time manager at the uh, Pizza Ranch. So in the process, Mr. Joyner, and he was at the Boys and Girls Club. So he came up there with the Boys and Girls Club, you know, to bring the kids up there to eat. And I got to thinking, I said, oh, man, we be having these, these programs up there that where the kids or groups can come in and they can do, you know, money for tips. What would they Fundraiser. The fundraiser. Mm -hmm. And I went out there and I took the boss lady out there and introduced her to Mr. Jordan. I said, I know you know Mr. Jordan from when he talked to you about us getting hired, you know, up in here for, you know, us felons. She was like, yeah, I remember Mr. Jordan. I said, well, just so I have Mr. Jordan work at Boys and Girl Club around the kids. I said, he, the, uh, groups like that, I said, can't they do fundraisers here too? She was like, yeah. Yeah, she said, that's perfect. So, you know, her and Mr. Jordan, you know, got together and, they, you know, they talked and they talked and I guess they had a lot more common than what they both expected because Mr. Jordan gave her some good pointers on a lot of, lot of things, you know, as far as her fundraisers and stuff like that. So, and when he did, what was it, Christmas? Yeah. Did he do his, he'd come up there where he'd do his Christmas gift giveaway and, and you know, all that up in there. And You're talking about a, a sing activity, the yes, annual from, activity. Yes. Where Mr. Joyner organizes having people who are sing clients bring their kids into Pizza Ranch and they have a meal. Yes. And they have gifts and things of that sort and just have a nice activity together. Yes. And I had the opportunity, you were there on yes. one of those occasions as the manager, but the owner was there, the lady yes. you're talking about. And I talked to her about you behind your back. <laughs> and, I, and I'll tell you, she said to me that you were just a wonderful employee. Yes. And she said, I don't know what we would do without him. Now, that tells me that the Sam Dent of today is doing something very different and you've proven yourself to be a reliable and valuable employee to Pizza Ranch. Now then Pizza Ranch went into the pandemic, closed down. Yes. What's happened since? It, it was over after that. So so now that you have left, now that the pandemic caused y'all to be laid off or whatever case was, so where you went from there? Where you went to work from there? Well, I, well, you know, during the pandemic, it it wasn't wasn't much we can do because of the pandemic. But you know, sitting around enjoying that unemployment, it it was just I'm looking like well, I know that's gonna have to come to an end soon. So I was I was trying to figure something out, you know. So. Uh, it was it was yeah it was kind of frustrating till once again, <laughs> Mr. Joyner, <laughs> I got something for you. I'm like, huh? He said, I got something for you. You know, I'm like, uh, well, Mr. Joyner, I don't want no fast food restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> if that's what you're talking about, he was like, no, Mr. Den, I think you're gonna like this. And uh, I said, all right, what you got for me? 
He said, well, trying to get in good contact with the SMTD, Springfield Mass Transit Department, uh, talk with them about, you know, he said he talked with them about felonies coming out, how do they feel about that, and, and you know, like he said, they pretty much, I mean, if they willing to work, something like that, we don't discriminate or nothing like that. We just, we just need good workers, you know what I mean, and... If they do us right, we do them right. You know what I mean? Like I said, if they're going to work, you know, we can get in there. So, you know, Mr. Jordan had me to go online to do an application. And so, sure enough, you know, I was called in. I was surprised. I was like, I'm thinking, man, Springfield Mass Trust, they'll never hire a guy like me. You know, I, I didn't think that. So enough went in, you know, and the, the lady that interviewed me, she was like, yeah, I, you know, I heard, you know, man, you're a reliable guy. You work. And, you know, Mr. Joyner assured me, you know, you know, you know, the, the shifting in the new gear, you know, guy, he assured me that you're a good worker. You know, she said, I end up getting hired. You know, the lady liked the how I talk. And, you know, she, we talked about my past jobs. And I told her how Mr. Joyner got me on there. She we talked about my past job. So she like, we 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 gonna, we here. We believe in giving guys that want to work. We believe in giving them a chance, so we're going to give you a chance. And <laughs> I must say once again, you know, I'm I'm kind of like the talk of the place because if they need me, they know I'm there. You know, so I'll, I don't have no problem with working or anything like that. They call me, <laughs> man, they call me first, sometime first thing in the morning. Sleep stealing my eyes. Mr. Dan, what you doing? We we need you. You're very your work. Say less. I'm on my way. You know, so. So, so let's back up for a minute. I hate to cut y'all, but let's back up for a minute. I think people really need to know this right here. Now, during all the time, you're getting all these jobs and stuff, the same program helping you with the jobs and stuff, but you have what we call supervised release. Where were you in the probation office dealing with all these transitions and stuff? How was that dealing with being on supervised release? What stress did that give you if it gave you any like it gave me? I had a lot of stress. I felt like going back to prison that one time. Actually, probably when I first got out, you know, and getting jobs like that, actually they worked with me. They worked with me on on my jobs and that where I had to be frustrated or nothing like that. If I look at my phone and see a message, you know, I call them back and, you know, they'll give me instruction to do this and do that. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, and I had uh, submitted an affidavit to get get released from my supervised release. And the first, you know, at first they denied me, you know, and for whatever reason, I don't know, I guess it felt that I ain't do enough time on supervised release or nothing like that. But then about two months later, I got a, a another uh, court paper, you know, from a lawyer up there in Peoria saying he submitted another affidavit, a motion for me to get off uh, supervised release. So I think I ended up about doing about three years, you know, out of 10 on supervised release. So last year I got I got a thing in the mail in August saying the beginning of September of twenty twenty, I would no longer be on supervised release. I would be off. 
Well, that's good for you because uh, I had five years. I, I did all five of mine. Everybody, most of all of my other co defenders got cut. Mine did not get cut. They made me do all five of them. But uh, one of the things that I struggled with, just for the listen to hear this, when you're on supervised release, you are still incarcerated. Right. You're out, but you still are in the system. They're part of your sentence. And uh, that's one thing that my PO was constantly telling me, just still a part of your sentence. Right. So I was like, part of my sentence? Yes. I done did my time. Why are y'all still keeping me? And one of the good things that I see you didn't have to deal with was they wasn't coming to your job like they had come to my job. Yeah. That, that frustrates you more than anything. Now people that didn't know you was a... What word I want to use? Have been to prison. Now they know. Everybody know your business. Now. Right, okay. Yeah, everybody know your business. Cause you know, you know, you sitting out there talking with the PO. Everybody, all the rest of your coworker looking at you like, oh, he's a criminal. Right. <laughs> you know. So there's a lot you have to deal with when you're on supervised release. So you want to try to develop that good relationship, like what you had with your uh, PO. And uh, I admire you for that, man, for staying with it. I I it actually I even invited mine to come up to my job. <laughs> no, I mean I'm like if I like I told my PO, you know, if you you feel you know you want to just stop in any day, I'm at, you call me and I'm, I'm at work. You want to stop in, stop in, you know, come in, come in up there, have lunch, you know, on me, you know what I mean? If it ain't on me, to be on the boss lady. She would love to talk to you too, you know. So uh, wow. unfortunately, right? They, they, like I said, they had the open invitation, but yeah, they, like I said, they never, they never showed up to my job. Well, they probably didn't feel that they needed to. <laughs> they did. <laughs> that means that means that you were somebody that they had confidence enough in. I know, Mister Joiner's over here looking. Well, what about me? <laughs> what about me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, in any event, you had a good job, and SMTD. The Mass Transit District seems to have, they're treating you well. Yes. What do you do there? And how much I, time do you, what are your hours? What do you work? I drive the uh, access bus. Uh, my hours, I'm supposed to have like six, six and a half hours a day or something like that. But I think they still like kind of short of staff or the business is way more than they can handle. So. Each sometime they just they just call me and ask me could I work or that before I go in and ask me could I work extra hours or something like that and my answer sure would be yes you know because I said take money to pay bills you know if and then I look at it like this if if some family happened family wide or some emergency you know you you need you need money to travel with or something like that so. So I, I don't mind by taking no extra hours or nothing like that. So I if, if I like I said, if there'd be an emergency or something like that, I've been in half money. I'd have been saved up for my paycheck where I can make it to that emergency. Without telling us the amount, they pay pretty good. Without telling us the amount that you make, they pay pretty good and they have nice benefit because lots of my family members are employed by them as yes. well. I look at I looked at it like this too. By me have being incarcerated, you know, you being incarcerated and you working for peanuts and pecans. <laughs> get out. Hey, 
minimum wage, which was when I first started, when I started off at like eight twenty-five an hour, that was fine with me, <laughs> you know. And so now you you work up from they didn't bump the minimum wage up, so pretty much the average job now probably starts you off at ten hour or something like that. Hey. <laughs> I look at it as a blessing. About that 12 or uh, uh, 21 cent we were making in prison. Yes, yes. Wow. And, and you're making more than that now. Oh, yes, sure. <laughs> yeah. Now, if you, as you look back at this after you got out of prison, you had several times that you've mentioned that Mr. Joyner was helping you out with finding places to work. Yeah. At least three jobs, different jobs. Yes, he did. What would have been your situation if you didn't have somebody, Mr. Joyner or somebody like him? How would they out? How would that have affected the outcome? If you're just on your own, uh, I probably I probably wouldn't be in a a better job position as this, you know, by, by Mr. Joyner being, you know, shipping his new shipping in the new gear program allows him, you know, to meet with companies and see if he can get touched down with getting offenders like us. A chance, something like that. I don't, I don't know if I've probably been at a, a fast food restaurant or back out there on the street, but I'm, I'm kind of, I'm thankful for the shifting in the new gear program. You know that, <laughs> that got me a long way. And and if there hadn't been that support, that assistance, and getting decent jobs. You faced probably a lot of temptation to go back to the the old ways so that you could pay the bills and make ends meet. Oh my God! Yes, yes, and it just it's just the thought of me drinking water from that place, you know, was <laughs> so I was like, oh no, no. A lot of them don't understand. Enough is enough. <laughs> well, now let's let's talk about your prison experience. Let's move backwards here to uh, when you went to prison. Yes. Tell us about your prison experience. Well, when I first went into prison, is you know, some, some, for some reason you got to have that tough man mentality thing, you know, and when you, you first go in, you're going you're gonna to have a lot of inmates want to know who you is, you know, what you do, what you're about, all type of things like that. Well, for me, on my behalf, all I knew is I had time to do. So I went in, you know, few, few, few guys from the street and stuff like that that wanted to talk, things like that. And, you know, being me, I'm like, no, I don't want to talk about that. You know, just, man, just, you know, you got to, you know, you guys just try to get a hold of yourself, settle in, uh, you know, know where you at and, you know, some kind of disbelief, you know, and it, and it takes a minute for that, you know, it just sometime or another, you know, then you, you'll come around, you know, you, you know, you get tired of being, you know, cooped up in your cell or your room, something like that. And you try to, then you try to get out and try to socialize a little bit to, like I said, to get some sense of, to, what happened, what went wrong, you know, why you're here, and stuff like that, you know, and just. Well, let me ask this. How much time did you spend in prison? 
if I'm not mistaken, I did like 17 years and I think eight months straight. About the same amount of time that Mr. Joyner spent in prison then? Yes. And during that time, you probably had a lot of opportunity to think about what's the point of all this? Yes, I had more than a lot of opportunities to think about it. Yes, that's what I thought. And being, you know, in federal institution, they, you know, they got job programs set up there. So it's not like you have to sit around or whatever. So you have to work. And I mean, I start, they they start y'all work as soon as you hit the door. So you, you, <laughs> as soon as you hit the door, you either, you either find your, uh, one of their working jobs in there or they going to give you one. The one they give you might not like, you know, or something like that. So I ended up with quite a few types of jobs in there, just, you know, but the, 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 like, far as landscaping, uh, maintenance and all that, you know, I, I ended up with a whole different lot of jobs, but the most jobs I ended up with that I held long was like in the kitchen, food service and, and laundry. So those, you know, and not only that, I didn't have a GD. And one of the, one of the COs and structs over a job that told me, man, you're a good worker. And if you want to get paid more, because getting 25, 20, 10 to $25 a month, <laughs> that wasn't going <laughs> to cut nothing. And not having a GED or high school diploma, you're in prison, that's all you're going to get. So I ended up getting my G. I even ended up getting my GED in prison. And, you know, like I said, that moved me up because, like I said, I was a good worker. And I ended up somehow getting, being grade ones, you know, and that, I mean, it it wasn't much out here, but to us in there, you know, that that, that grade one carried a lot of weight. You know, it just you could you could you could better your commissary selection. You know, better your survival in there where you won't have to you know depend on your hometown inmates or something like that to give you what you need or. Sturdy word, your family out on the street for things like that, you know what I mean? Because, like, everybody know, even though your family on the street, they got a lot of responsibilities out here as well that they have to take care of. If you in, if you in there pressing your family to do this and do that and y'all don't do this, y'all don't love me type stuff, you, you'd be dead wrong, you know what I mean? Because they have things they going through out on the street and – by you being in there, you're not seeing that. All you, all you seeing is just you. Yes, and what you should have, stuff like that. You know. So just just for the listen, I want to uh, explain something to them. What Sam mean when he talk about a grade one? It's more like a supervisor out here, like your manager, your supervisor. There are crew other individual, other inmate that work under you, which is right. grade two, grade three, grade four, and a grade five. The individual work under you, so you like you the supervisor as a grade one would make you to make a higher pay. But my question to you, Sam, why didn't you work in Unicor? Let me explain to them what Unicor is. Unicor is a factor in the prison, in the federal prison system, where they make different type of stuff like army gear, uh, blanket, bed, different stuff like that. Right. Why didn't you work in Unicor? You make more money, especially with you being a great one. Well, 
that I they give you an option, you know, when you come in to, to get on the list for Unicor, but sometimes you, you that Unicor list could be long. Okay. You know, so I actually I didn't even think about no Unicor, even though it was suggested. <laughs> uh I I wasn't nothing crazy. Like I said, well, if I, once once I started a job in there, and it's it's actually it's the 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 CEO of that job is accustomed to you you doing great work that they try to make sure they try to give you the highest pay that they can to keep you there. Yeah. Cause you're doing great work. And if even if you like you said, you got grade two, three, whatever, don't do whatever to make the cut, that grade one to do will go behind him and do what he need to do to make the cut. I mean, so I didn't the the fine I was given when I first got locked up, it wasn't nothing crazy. So that got paid on off. So I didn't owe no fine or nothing like that. So actually the guys that go into Unicor, I mean, some do it for, you know, the money, but most of them go in because they probably have a big fine or something like that. And they go in to try to, you know, get their fine kicked out the way or something like that. So what you're talking about here is in the prison, they essentially had jobs for people and different levels of jobs. And Unicor is like a, a, a manufacturing business. Yes. That they're running. In the U.S. Attorney's Office, where I work, most of our furniture was made by Unicor. Yes, yes. And so they, I know they make a lot of things. So they put you to work. Now, along the process and this prison experience that you have, I've heard prison described as crime college. It was one of my former defendants said, to me, Dave, what do you think a bunch of criminals all crammed together all day long talk about? Crime. Yes. How to commit it and how to get away with it. Yes. Prison is crime college. That's what he said. What's your thoughts about that? It do exist. <laughs> you mean, like me, being incarcerated, I, you know, walk around moving. Yes, you know, I walks up on, you know, you got groups here, groups there, and yes, they, and that's what they do. They talk about how they done did this, how they done did this, and what they should have did. And maybe, you know, how things would have been different, you know, all that. So they go in, and then, yes, they have time to think. They have time to re-utilize their brain. And so when, 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 when individuals out on the street and they see this well, what this come from and that come from? Yes, that's because they didn't went in and they didn't use that brain to utilize this in their head. And I can I can make this. I can make. Oh man, I can uh, I can make plenty off that. And and somehow this it comes out and it works from 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 drugs to food. You know what I mean? To come in and. They learn a new dish, you know, in the joint of how to do a way of a new dish, all that. It just from criminal minded to using their mind, like I said, to for business or food business or, you know, great business, you know, something like that. So it's So it sounds to me like what you're describing is two tracks of education going on in yes. parallel. Yes. One of them, the the prison system, the federal prison system at least, is trying to give you uh job skills 
and job habits to yes. become a good, reliable employee on a, yes. on a law-abiding track. And on the other track, you've got the inmates putting their heads together and trying to educate each other and <laughs> yes. brainstorming about how to commit crime, how to avoid being caught, and how to be a better criminal. Yes. Now, you got two tracks. What makes the difference between which track people choose? What made the difference in your life? Which of those two tracks you choose? What made the what made the difference in my life and what I choose? I got a good people behind me. You know, I got like, like Mister Joiner here. He instantly, once he you know seen and noticed me, without he instantly stood on top of me. You know, just about I know you can do better. Not not only just Mister Joiner, the the halfway house I was at. The uh, Miss 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 Crawford, she like man. I know you. I know you're a good person. You, Maria Crawford. Yes, she's she, she's she, the president of Sing. Did you know that? Yeah. Yes, but but when Sam, when I first met Sam, she was not a board member for us at all. Uh, one of the thing, uh, same with what you asked Sam. One of the bigger thing for me that made the, the, the choice that I was like. I can't put my family through this no more. I don't want to go through this no more. Being in prison to me was like being in another world. You around people, you around people that got so much talent. You wonder why this person in prison. You begin to you in prison with the person, but you still saying why are you in prison, yes. man? Make you wonder. This person is so smart. Why are you here in prison? But what we fail to realize is. They committed a crime, though. Right. See, they knew the right thing. They just tried to do a little bit too much, as we say, and they got caught with it. Now they in here teaching because you got these same business people teaching these classes in prison. They right. teaching your class. The system allowed them to teach classes. Well, they teaching you every shortcut how to get around this and that. Hey, man, if you get a kilo, how to convert this and make it into three. Hey, yeah. I buy one, I can make it into three. Now you got the Hispanic guys in there teaching you how to connect, how they can get it to you. <laughs> oh, man, so much man, schooling so much. in there, you wouldn't believe it. About man. crime. Yeah. yeah. Now, this is, now, this is just really interesting to me because this is really true out on the street too because you got two tracks out on the street you got employment that you could get with yeah. law-abiding you know legit jobs and then you've got the criminal path where you can make money selling drugs or doing other sorts of things mm -hmm. stealing stuff mm -hmm. various forms of crime so it's kind of that's that's life out of prison but it's apparently life in prison too that there's these two tracks now the whole point of sending people to prison is the idea that they're going to be punished or somehow they're going to come out less likely to continue on the criminal track that caused them to go there in the first place. What are your thoughts about that? Does prison move people off the criminal track onto the law-abiding track or does it make them better criminals? Or some of both, depending on the person, and what makes the difference? Yeah, like I said, it 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 do it do it do depend on the person, and it's probably pretty much how their mindset. For instance, me, when I I went in, when I didn't have to work or was out, 
doing rec activities or nothing like that, my mind wandered, you know. My mind wandered on what I was going to do, how if I was going to be, come out and be a better drug dealer or could I come out and work, you know, and I mean, it's, 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 it's pretty much all on you. So I just, like I said, I made that and I brainstorm and, you know, I thought about, I thought about my family. I thought about the things my family went through, you know, your friends and family. Just, that's, that's just how you think. And, and I think, like you said, if you put your mind to it, well, I don't, I don't want my family and friends to go through that no more. Man, I got to get out and I got to do better. You know, I got to do right. And with even with a little help, you know, you 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 can accomplish to do right. I see. I'm a. I guess I'm a witness to that myself. Cause like I said, my friends and family stay on top of me. You know, and man, I just. How long did that take? I mean, let's suppose you'd been sentenced to three years or five years in prison instead of seventeen. Would you have come out with the same mindset? No, I mean, I don't think it, it, it's not how long you said as you know, it just, like I said, you, you, your mindset and you got your, your, your family going to get on top of you instantly. I'm like, man, you know, you've been to prison. So that stuff there, you don't need in your life. Nothing like that, man. I know you can do better to someone even help. Like Mr. Jordan, even help me. If you don't have a ride, Mr. Then I can get you a ride, you know, I'll get you to where you need to go or something like that, which. You know, I'm like, Mr. John, I'm all right. I got to ride. You know, he, I mean, he, he, he'll go over, out, and beyond to help, you know, an individual if, if, if they willing to, if they want to help and they trying to better themselves. He, he go out the way and he, I mean, he need to make sure. So, like I said, I, I'm thankful for the, the shipping in the new gear program because, like I said, they do a lot. Not just, not just for the inmate getting out, you know, ex felonies perspective but for their family as well you know he just so if i'm hearing you right what you're saying is that it's not how much time you serve in prison it's what happens when you get out of prison yes whether there's a, a viable realistic alternative to crime yes or whether your inability to get a decent paying good paying job and the law-abiding side on yeah. that track causes you to go back to what you used to know and to go back to what you were talking about, people were talking about in crime college back in prison. Yeah. So people like Mr. Joyner and the Singh program make all the difference because there's somebody there to support you on doing, right. I'm going to just say doing what's right instead of going what's wrong. What do you think, Mr. Well, Joyner? Well, I think Mr. Jordan might be a little uh, confrontation with this. My thing was this right here. If I had, you pose that same question to me, if I had this three or five years, guess what? I wouldn't change. I would have still been a drug dealer when I got out. Because understanding my first, it took me four years to even begin to come to in sync with myself. What I mean by that is, cause I'm mad. I'm angry with everybody. I'm, I'm blaming everybody except myself. This how I was. So if I had did three or five years, that short of time, I've been okay. When I got out, 
I went right back into being a drug dealer. But I've been a little more smarter because in there, a lot of people had taught me different things, a different way to approach it. Now, also, the reason I will say this for Sam, I didn't have what Sam have. I didn't have a Leonard Joyner when I got out. Right. I didn't have that person. This is the difference. I didn't have that Leonard Joyner. I had nobody right. other than my family. But because of my pride in me, I wouldn't allow my family to help me. I began to go do other things. Okay, I got this book. I do, see, people told me how to make this book work for me when I first got out. See? The book that you wrote. Yes. They told me how to do this, LJ Cocoon. People told me, hey, you ain't got no money. This is what you do. This is what you do since you ain't got no money. While you're writing the book, even though you want to self-publish it, people will help you with that. Now, as far as the re-entering program go. I didn't get no help from no re-entering program. There was no singing program when I came out here. They had a few programs out here, but they wasn't really doing what they should have been doing, not to say nothing bad about them, but there was, they didn't have that for me. So mine was a little different from Sam. So now when Sam get out, I, I have now came up with the singing program because I didn't want people to be like I was, wondering, with all that one, guess what came through my head? Mm, maybe turn back to my old ways. So see, until you find that balance in your life, it's always up and down, up and down. You think about going back. Then there are guys started coming to me. Now, I'm, I'm out here. There are guys started coming to me. Hey, man, you joined it all the way with nice, man. Y'all own the joint. Hey, home, man. We all owe y'all. Y'all the real OGs, man. Hey man, take this key, man. Just man, just just give me what I paid for, man. Russell, you can have it, man. Doesn't it? So all these things coming at me. Temptations. Yes, they're coming at me. But because I got out of prison before I released from prison, I was able to stay strong and stay focused because I had made myself a promise. See, when you promise self something. You stand firm. Yes, promise I'll make to be broken. But I was determined not to go back. I'm determined not to go back. So that's what kept me focused. Okay, so here's the question then. That that's what changed you. But now why did you then turn around and help other people when they got out? What was it that made you do that? Because you're not getting paid to do it. Okay. What made me do it is my family in prison. See, you grow and learn. Those individuals in prison with you become your family. Not everybody, but just you being in prison, you bond with individuals. You make bonds and promises with one another. See, there's some, there are good people in prison. There are people that want to change in prison but don't know how to make a transition. So somebody have to be willing to take that step and say, hey, God, I'm going out here. We're talking about all the good things we want to do. I'm going to go out here and be a lead person for us. I'm going to pay forward for us. So as I got ready to leave prison, all the good things I was doing in prison, in prison you go to church, you put on plays and stuff, because nobody else doing this stuff for you. So I made that promise to them that I would go and go out here and make a way and let the 
let the world know there are some good people coming out of prison. We made a mistake. Now we need a chance to show you that we have learned to make better decisions. We have grew. So what do you think about that, Mr. Dent? I'm I'm a, I'm a leading example. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are. I came out and I grew, and I grew for the better. You know, I mean, with the help of this the Sing program, Mr. Joyner, I am thankful. And he still, even you know, now like now, he reached out to me, even though I can say how my work schedule is. Um, he reached out to me, you know. Mr. Dent, I, I I need to interview you. You know, uh, me and Mr. Ridley, we we got this pod thing going. We want to interview you. We trying to interview how many individuals we can. This you know, fresh out of prison, uh, been out of prison, you know. And I was like, oh, Mr. John, I don't know, cause my schedule, oh man, if I just so happened today, you know, I said, well, Mr. John, I don't know, I don't think they're. Get me in too early," he said. "Well, we're gonna try it anyway. I'm sorry, that'll work. So, here you are. Here I am. You've probably had a lot of time to think about how, okay, this system could be better than it is. How would you improve it? Well, you got you got you got a lot of young individuals that don't know nothing about work. So I say. Pretty much, it's a lot of work need to be done, and I don't know if if how they do like this this the boot camp or community service thing like that. Work a good work camp, the you know the man like from road cleanup to road preparing or something like that. The you know like you get say you say you give them a big fine. All right, and we're gonna we're gonna need y'all to take care of this big fine, and to get y'all off the street. I think a a good community service, like I said, road clean for anywhere from road clean up to preparing anything that need to be done. How long it take? So you can work off your fine, not necessarily with money, but by putting in hours of right. service, like working on a road crew. Yes, or say, say if. Well, Mr. Dent, your time you was you was looking at say we we was gonna give we give you ten years we was gonna give you ten years for this here, but I tell you what, what if we give you boot camp to do this work for three or five years boot camp? Now we'll take your choice, which would you like? So in other words, you're talking about incentives. Yes. Now, this is one of the things that's a policy issue with the criminal justice system. One is there are two different systems for sentencing. One is a determinate sentencing. They sometimes call it truth in sentencing, which is at the time you're sentenced, the judge sentences you to a specific number of years. And you're going to serve that amount of time, minus some that you might, minimal amount that you might get for some good time or something like that. But basically, you're going to serve that amount of time. If you got mm-hmm. sentenced to seven years, you're going to serve seven years. Right. Maybe six and a half if you with a certain amount of incentives. The other system is an indeterminate system where there's a maximum amount of time that's set, let's say 15, 20 years, but when you get out is up to you. And what you do while you're in the prison system 
and there's ways that they evaluate you, your performance, your attitude, the classes you take, the things of that sort, your behavior, and then they make an assessment of whether you'd be a, a threat assessment as to whether you'd be a safe bet for release. Right. At that point, you hold the key to your release. The other one, no matter what you do, you're still going to serve that same amount of time unless the law changes, which is how Mr. Joyner and you both got out a little bit earlier than you would have otherwise. Which system makes more sense to you? One where the sentence is fixed and the judge at the time of sentencing has no idea which path you're going to take, what experience you're going to have, what's going on in your head while you're in prison, and it doesn't matter. You're going to serve a certain amount of time, period. Or a sentencing system in which the judge may set the maximum, but you hold the key to the prison door. What you do and the choices you make while in prison make the difference of when you get out. Right. Which system makes more sense to you? I would say the second one do make the difference. I mean, if if you hold a key on to get out, you just, in other words, getting you a chance to change your life, you know, to, to do, you know, change your life and do better and learn that the streets ain't always it, you know. Well, with that same question being posed to me that you asked Mr. Dent, first thing I would not have applied the uh, mandatory minimum. In my case, the mandatory minimum, I think, was like 20 years. I recall, if I recall correct, I think the judge told me something like, hey, man, my hand tied, just the mandatory minimum, this is what it is. And I would have something more in place like, like I said, something similar to a boot camp. Like, okay, if this, I don't want you to just go to prison. I want you to go somewhere where you can learn something like have some type of incentive for being a good worker, taking classes that you need that will help you on your release for his stuff like, they had a good class where I was called uh, PMA, Positive Mental Attitude. That class worked you mentally. It, it, it tested you to see where you was mentally by a guy named Napoleon Hill. That would help me. That class helped me more than anything in prison. Because that class told me, so as a man thinks, so is he. That never left me. If I think I'm a criminal, I'm a criminal. But if I think positive, I can do whatever I, I believe I can do. You know what you're talking about is... I can be positive. One of the things that is they've studied the Illinois prison system in terms of what works and what doesn't, mm -hmm. in terms of changing outcomes, whether mm -hmm. people get out and they come back in a few years or even a year, and those who don't, those who make a, a success of it, a successful transition into law-abiding life and community yeah. life. What makes the difference? What, what works and what doesn't? One of the things, well, the thing that is most cost-effective is what's called cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. And yes. what you're describing there sounds a lot like, you know, they call it, it PMA, positive mental attitude, but it's the same sort of thing. In essence, you've got to get your head straight before you can get your life straight. Exactly. And so you can be given all sorts of opportunities, but if you don't have your head straight, you're not going to go straight. Ain't no question. <laughs> Bite go with the head lead you. Uh, you know, without... 
I mean, if, if they would have given me something like uh, told me, hey, Mr. John, okay, you're the first time offending. Remember, they came out with the first time offending stuff, but they had a lot of different criteria with it, though, that make you wonder, okay, you say if I'm a first time offending, that's your all matter. But no, that was criteria that would keep you from getting it. <laughs> they had criteria around it that would keep you from getting it. So you might want it, but you wouldn't be eligible. Say you had, uh, like for instance, I think it was that two-point gun enhancement. Say you had that. No, you wasn't getting it. Because now you uh a violent offender because you got a gun in case. Even though it didn't say that that I had the uh, gun, but I had the two-point enhancement, so I couldn't get it. So, so in other words, the people who get the best programs are the ones who are the least threat of danger to the community. And the more dangerous you are to the community, the less opportunities for a different way of life you get while you're in prison because you're not eligible for them. Exactly, exactly, hmm. exactly. I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense. Me neither, but that is what it is. There's a lot of things in there that throw you for a loop, like when the, uh, when the crack law changed. When the crack law changed, there was a certain amount if you had you wasn't eligible. Right. But it's but how how does this make sense? I still don't understand it. You said if I had a crack case, I'm eligible for a reduction in my sentence. Now all of a sudden you come up and you put an amount in it. What difference it make you putting an amount in it? If I got a crack case, I got a crack case, regardless of how much. I told them I wrote a letter to Senator Dick Durbin and told him that discrimination. You sign, oh, you can have crack because I got more than you. I'm disqualified. It doesn't make sense. I still don't understand that to this day. It don't make sense. Well, you, Mr. Dent, have talked about in the federal system there were some incentives, or there ought to be more incentives, and I think there ought to be in any criminal system because when you get right down to it, Things are the way they are because that's what how the incentives align. Right. And if you want to change outcomes, then change the incentives. Exactly. So I think that's part of what needs to be in the mix as we think and rethink our criminal justice system. What incentives do we have in place? And what supports do we have in place to help people have the incentive to get their life straight and the ability to get their life straight? Now, that, some people, that may include drug treatment. Some people, it's cognitive behavioral therapy, depending on where you are on the way. Some people, it may be job skills and job opportunities and work habits, things of that sort. Everybody's different. So it's one system. You try to get justice by having everything consistent, like a mathematical system. And the other one, you have to look at each individual as an individual. And I can tell you, it's not easy to figure out what sort of system we ought to have. I have my own opinions, but I learn from you. You guys are subject matter experts. You've been on the inside. You've experienced it. Right. And somebody like me and the people who are listening here, for the most part, are going to be people who haven't experienced that. So it's really valuable to get your thinking. Is there anything else either one of you wants to share before we close up? Yeah, I can say this. During, during my experience in prison, from inmates and COs, 
they used to be look at me and used to be always like, man, why are you in here? And, you know, because I, I was always quiet and I, you know, what what I was asked to do, you know, as far as job-wise, whatever, I did it. And I didn't get the COs, no problems or nothing like that. It was lock-up time, whatever, I locked up. And they used to be like, man, they all, they all, all of them like, why are you in here? And I tell them, and they be like, I don't see it. You know, I don't I don't see it. You, Man, you're a good person. I don't see it. And I just I start laughing. Me like, yeah, I know, man, but unfortunately, you know, Hey, you know, I mean, I, I got caught up, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. And, then, and that's what the formula said, 20 years. Yes. Even I was I was there, I yeah. know. I was the prosecutor in the case. Yes. 20 years was 20 years. I was in uh I was in Florence, Colorado. I had to go in and see a case manager. Oh yeah, Florence, Colorado, yes. Every bit of tough. Yeah. And I, yeah, man, I mean, I was there when Oh man, rice oh, no. broke out, all kind of stuff. And yes. you know, they you know that how they do the interviews when Rod broke out, they call you in off to see what happened, you know, and like Mr. Riz would do. Yeah, and yes. Like did back then. Yes. And, <laughs> you know, I had to it was come time for, you know, when they do your points and send you out to get you another joint, but Somehow this this one one case manager told me my points never change, how I be there and everything. I was like, I mean, okay, I'm fine with it. But then when I go see this other caseworker, she was like going through through all my papers and she was like, What are they talking about? I don't see it. I mean, violet, where is that? You know, I mean, huh? All the time you locked up, you got sent no. Well, she's like, well, I'm getting this. She got all that violent stuff that was on, on, on my paperwork. She got it out of there, and she was like, well, I was then I was in FCI, the Federal Correctional Institution. Yes, yeah, so, you know the the medium. So now, she when she did all that, she like, all right, Mister. Then I got rid of where you want to go. I'm like, huh? She know where do you want to go? I'm like, what you mean? Where I want to go? Well, you had before a low now. You can have to go to a, a low facility. So where do you want to go? I said, man, I don't, I don't know. I mean, wherever, you know, I mean, still prison, you know what I'm saying? So wherever. And that's how I ended up in uh, Lexington, Kentucky. So she said, well, it's not close, but it's close. So I buy Lexington, Kentucky. I was like, it's fine. She like, yeah, because... All this they got in here, she's like, I don't see it, man. We, we finna get you out of here. And they, they got me away from Florence, Colorado. Like I said, they, they did a lot of rough stuff in there, like said, but like I said, I just. Depends on the person that you get as your caseworker or your. Yes. I mean, they just, if they look through your paperwork right, they got time and they want to make sure everything's right, they go through your paperwork right. Well, there's a lot more options in the federal system, that's for sure, than there is in the state system. Yes. The state system, having worked in the governor's office and worked with the Department of Corrections, Illinois Department of Corrections, uh, it's a different world. They, they face uh, resource challenges. Uh, they don't have all these institutions all across the country that they can work with where they send you to. One institution where there's a cooking school where you can become a certified chef like Mr. Yes. Joyner did. Yes. They do have some, in the state system, uh, some job programs. 
and uh, some of them are really good, but it's hard to make those available. Well, they, they don't have the resources to make them available to everybody that wants to get into those programs. Right. Even, I took up cooking school too. I think I did about five years. For it wasn't culinary art; it was just just playing cooking school. Yeah, they have a catering gourmet. You do about I think you have to do like sixty months, which is five years. Yeah, five years of school. Yes, they want you to learn everything from 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 Baking, cleaning, the, from cleaning, from all the way from the bottom to the top. Then it's like two thick books like this you got to go through, and a couple small books. They you, everything. Good thing about it, it's free, though. Yes. It's free, you know? Yeah. And when you get out of prison, let me just point this out. When you get out of prison and you're applying for a job as a cook here in Springfield or anywhere else, how many people who are also applying for those jobs who did not go to prison have gone through five years of training <laughs> to be a cook? Not many. Or probably none. Right. You're probably the most qualified applicant for the job, and yet because you have a prior felony conviction, it may be more difficult for you to get or keep the job, as Mr. Joyner found yes. out. Yes, yes. But one of the things that I will say about, about the certification you gain while you're in prison, it doesn't have the prison on it at all. It's just like one you would yes. get out here. My certification do not have prison on it nowhere. Right. Just like any other chef, mine the same way. Just as like you, you have one, mine look just like yours. Well, this has really been an interesting and instructive conversation. And it's one that we're going to, Mr. Dent, we're going to, Mr. Joyner and I will keep this conversation going with other guests. We really appreciate you being here with us today. Like I yeah. said, I'm excited. I was excited to be here. <laughs> well, I can tell you that I was excited to uh, make reacquaintance with you after sure. you got out of prison because of Mr. Joyner putting us together. I just really respect you for what you've done with thank your you, life. Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm very proud you, of you. you. Thank you, too. I'm very sure. proud of you. Like I said, I, I probably, I'm probably ain't at where I want to be at, but on where I need to be at. Exactly. That's good, good word and good, good. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Justice Voices. Next week, we go to Chicago for an interview with Marlon Chamberlain, another returned citizen who built a new life after serving a mandatory minimum 20-year sentence. Mr. Chamberlain now manages a program sponsored by the Heartland Alliance called Fully Free, a campaign to end what he calls permanent punishment due to the obstacles people face even after release from prison and completing their sentences. Like Mr. Dent's, Mr. Chamberlain's is a story that needs to be told, a voice that needs to be heard. Be sure to hit the subscribe button to this program so you don't miss that or any future episodes. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. <laughs>